giant robot smashing into other giant robots. This is the Giant Robots Smashing into Other Giant Robots podcast, where we explore the design, development, and business of great products. I'm your host, Chad Pytel, and with us today is John Werner, CEO and co-founder of Koya Innovations. John, thanks for joining me. Hey, Chad. Thanks for the introduction and for inviting me to the show. So you've done a lot of interesting things, and we're going to talk about them all today, but uh, let's start with Koya and what exactly this, in my opinion, pretty unique product is doing. Well, Koya is is interesting. It's like if Vimo and Foursquare went out for a coffee, you know, it's like the combination of geofencing uh, and the ability to send gifts of payment between people. And this was kind of born out of a family vision that we had uh, over a year ago. Uh, when I was leaving the brand Adidas, uh, having worked there for 10 years, I had the opportunity to step back and think about, okay, what do I want to do next? And I really wanted to involve my family this time in, in a business. I had started another company prior that got acquired by Adidas. And during the course of my years at Adidas, counting down uh, when I can actually do that, when would be the perfect timing. And the perfect timing presented itself. Uh, we had a family conference, if you will, during my, uh, my birthday in 18. And one of the questions that came up in that conversation was, hey, Dad, what do you, what do you dream about? What do you want to do? I said, well, let's, let's circle back around and do that family business. And I said, well, what do you want to do, Dad? I mean, I said, well, we guess, let's do something that will change the world. And so we listed a bunch of ideas. And one of the things that we were already doing as a family was sending messages of kindness to one another, surprising each other serendipitously, uh, whether it be in a coffee shop or sticking a, a note in some luggage. And so when you actually arrived at your location, you'd unpack your luggage and there's a note there. Oh, my gosh, look at that. That's so surprising. <laughs> Trying to surprise each other and outdo each other as a family really connected us because our, our older daughters were at the time living uh, for the last five or so years. They were living away from Austin, which is where home base is. Uh, they were living in Detroit and uh, La Jolla, so kind of opposite areas of the, of the country. And so we had to do some a lot of heavy lifting to try to surprise them when they would enter into a place we know that they would frequent and have their coffee bought for them or, or whatever it was that we were trying to do to surprise them. So based on that thinking of what we were doing in the analog, we thought, wow, wouldn't it be cool if we could actually create and package up something that would allow people to be you know, kind, show serendipitous acts of kindness to their friends and family? And that was the birth of Koya. Like I said, I think it's a really great, uh, unique fun, uh, meaningful idea. And the fact that you were doing it with your family is also really interesting, given that it's something that comes out of wanting to work with your family, having this idea. How much did you worry about sort of the traditional business metrics? Like, how is this going to pay for itself? Can we build a successful business here? Was that all secondary to the other goals that you had? Or was it a first class consideration? It wasn't a first class consideration, uh, but it wasn't too far behind it. The first class was the dynamic of trying to balance uh, life between family and business trying to get that right and doing it right from the outset, knowing that we're going to mess up. We're going to do things that are, that are going to offend each other or, or because we're, we're speaking to each other in different languages, right? So, or as different roles, you know, it goes from dad to CEO. I mean, that can, that can happen mm-hmm. in, a, in a blink. I can go from my wife to my assistant that's helping me stay on task. And I don't really want to do that task, but she's my wife. So all these dynamics and then our daughters trying to also co-labor together. But they'd actually had the experience working together for several years prior to us doing this. So they kind of figured out those kinks and most of those kinks before they came and joined the team. But I would say that was the primary one was trying to get that right right up front. And we're still working on it. We're not, it's not a perfect thing. But everybody wants to be part of that and try to make it make it happen. Then secondarily is, hey, we want to set a platform up so not only can my wife and I enjoy, you know, the time that we can spend together and any of the fruits of this labor uh, going forward because we love traveling, but we want to put a platform in place for our daughters to learn the ropes, understand what it's like in the startup community, network, and be able to eventually take on their own companies down the road. So, you know, we're real close to being on that same level as of desire of creating this company is creating a platform for them to now go and succeed. And so after that sort of family meeting, as you put it, what was the next step that you did? 
Uh, the next step was to take some well-deserved time off from having worked at the oh, okay. <laughs> uh, and then reconvene. Well, the idea was still crystallizing. And so once we actually, mm-hmm. you know, I was able to formulate this, this idea, and this was still just me now at this point working and thinking about you know, how we were going to put this thing together. What were the core features? What was the value proposition for going forward? Then I came across, well, hey, you know what, Let's, let me go take a look and see what in the industry is at the intersection of location, money, and time. Is there anything right there in that space? And in my searching, I didn't find anything. There wasn't anything that really combined all those things up to be uh, a trigger mechanism for the delivery of something that had both a personal message associated with it, very personal, uh, with a money attachment and the location side all that kind of combined to be something pretty unique. So I filed for all of IP around that space early to get all that covered because I my background is in tech and uh, I've worked at several companies that kind of instilled in me, uh, specifically IBM for five years, creating IP, uh, not necessarily for an offensive weapon, but mostly for a defensive weapon. And it actually came to really help us in, in one of the, la- the last startup I did before this one where the brand, you know, Adidas really wanted that IP that we had with that prior company. And so everything I do now kind of starts off with, okay, come up with the idea, lay out the IP. Now let's go and see what this thing's going to look like based on, on how we're protecting ourselves. When you say um, protecting the IP, what does that actually mean? Does it mean patents? It means patents. It means filing for all that. And what happens is it's a discipline, right? So there are people Mm -hmm. that don't believe in patents at all, and there's some that do. And I'm not here to judge either way. But I just know that in in my past experiences, the patents have been very valuable as an asset. And it's a way for us to carve a space if we got into a situation where, I mean, we're a small company. And if there are larger companies that can come in, see what we're doing, and if we're successful and when we're successful at what we're doing, they might want to pivot and get into our space. I mean, you can see what happened between Snapchat and Facebook, right? There's no IP around Mm -hmm. that. So Facebook's copying Snapchat, Snapchat's copying Facebook, and predominantly Facebook copying Snapchat. Took away all their customer base. They had no recourse. They had nothing they could do to help, you know, stop that even though they had the the lead in that technology space or whatever the experience was, we don't want that to happen to us. And so that's the intellectual property that I'm talking about is is really covering that off so that if something was to happen where a company started to come into our space that, you know, was not doing savory practices and knowing that we had the IP but wasn't, wasn't willing to talk to us about it, we can have a conversation at that point, else we don't have any conversation. My feeling is that as designers and developers, Patents aside, we like to believe that the best product or the people who have an idea first are going to be the ones who are going to be successful. And we don't like things that tell us or indicate to us that that might not be the case. And I think that that plays into, if not like an outright belief in that patents shouldn't exist, but just a general sense of like, I wish I didn't have to do that or I shouldn't have to do that because we... We like to believe that just having the best product is enough. I would agree with that 100%. And I am a firm believer in, hey, you know what? If you if you can build something that customers want and you can stay ahead of any other competitors that are out there because you have the early advantage, that's your best offense. It's to continue to innovate. And it's actually to create a product from day one that's usable. And people want to enjoy it and share it because there's some applications that I can download and I'll just flick that away and delete it right away, even if it has you know, a lot of users using it, but I don't care for the the design of it. It doesn't feel right to me. I will pick a lesser product, not in features or anything, but one that's better designed over one that is less designed but has more traction. If you, I think that mm-hmm. kind of is paralleling what you just said, in the hopes of that company then succeeding, uh, because that's what I prefer using. But in in a lot of cases, though, we're in a social space and a social networking space, and there's some big players in this space. Yeah. And for us to get traction, to, for us to be to get visibility, we're going to have to do some really fast, you know, agile development and reaction to consumer feedback to really stay ahead of this. And I think that's what we can do on the design front. There's also another thinking that users have, and that is the transparency of the company itself. Is the company out there creating something that's of value for humanity? Is it something if you go look at the long tail of the company? What are they doing philanthropically? I mean, they're looking at this stuff now, right? So part of our charter is, is giving back uh, 10% of our profits to a nonprofit. And we're also looking at ways to 
completely be transparent on all aspects of our business, you can't really say that against some of these socials that we're coming up against, right? So that's going to be one mm-hmm. of our our defense mechanism, or maybe our, even our offensive mechanism, and say, hey, we're open book. Look at everything we're doing and pick the company you feel resonates most with your values. That's the other part. It's the values and the design, I think, combined is what really helps a product succeed. Is this the first time that at one of your companies you've done that, the open book way of working? It is because uh, prior to this, I was working at a startup that was pre-iPhone and pre-Android, so no smartphones. And so in that scenario, you had a very closed ecosystem, not by our choice, but just by the dominant players in that space. I don't know if you remember this, but when you wanted to get an app on a mobile phone prior to the iPhone, you had to have a detailed contract with each of the carriers' networks that you wanted to put that app onto. And not Mm -hmm. only that, you had to go and negotiate your app in each application store for each carrier. So you couldn't just put it on Verizon and it's and it gets on AT&T or right. Sprint. You get the idea. Yeah. And when, when as a consumer, you in the rudimentary app stores that existed, you installed one of those apps, the charge actually showed up on your phone bill. That's right. So it was Verizon or AT&T who was actually charging you for the app. Well, that and, and if you think about it too, going into how does a company like that make money, Pretty much everything was a subscription model or a pay. There was no, mm-hmm. there was not a whole lot of free out there, freemium models, because the networks in themselves continually wanted to monetize their network, right? Mm-hmm. Because you're using traffic over their network. And now that we're divorced by all that, we don't have to worry about, you know, tolls on the network. We don't have to worry about the app store issues predominantly. I mean, there's just two big ones that are still out there and we can't, as independent publishers, it would be great to be able to have alternate places to be able to publish. But outside of that, we have a lot more freedom. And it could be based on the fact that you talked about earlier, you know, the monopolies and the old business practices that we were talking about, they, they caved away to consumer demand. You know, they didn't like that model. They wanted something open. And so therefore, it was a win for the consumers to get out of that space. So going all the way back, or maybe not quite all the way back, but you went to school for computer science Correct. and you started your career as a developer. I did. Mm-hmm. My first job was at the Pentagon for about a year, uh, working for as an Air Force contractor, uh, doing some cool stuff around keeping track of missile inventory and, uh, and aircraft attrition. That's such an exciting thing. You, you know, you want to tell a whole lot of people, but it really cut my teeth on, on a getting me out of the South and allowing me to work with a more diverse set of developers. Uh, when I was up in the D.C. area, loved the interaction. That actually changed my whole perspective and, and worldview on working with people of color. And, and just everything was different. It was so exciting to get into that kind of a space. But the job itself and living in a working in a in a place where there's no windows or in a building that was built in the 40s <laughs> uh, where you couldn't even bring your wife or your kids into. You couldn't even tell them what you were doing. That, that got old fast. Uh, so I, <laughs> I served one year at that company and quickly spun out uh, to actually the first startup I've worked at, not one that I founded, but I was employee number three at a company that was doing, we call it control software for fast attack submarines. And that got me to work with all kinds of input devices. So from a design perspective, imagine now I've got track marbles, track pads, touch panels. I mean, this is all in the late 80s. Uh, where all this stuff wasn't consumer facing at all. It was all mm-hmm. behind closed doors and how all this stuff worked. But so much fun to be able to interact in multiple sensory ways, uh, visually, audibly, tactically, you know, creating these systems that was just a blast and doing it in different working conditions. Because if you think in a submarine, it's it's lights out, right? So you can't, you, know, you got you to gotta think about the contrast, what colors you're using, what's going to be the most visible in near dark scenarios what's going to be visible when the lights come up and all that kind of stuff played into you know a discipline that really carried me and and made me more thoughtful for what the consumer would be seeing when they were playing or using any of the technology I developed how did you get involved with that startup it, it seems like a big jump from maybe not in terms of space it's still a similar space but to go from the company you're working at to a three person startup how did you make that jump? Yeah, that was a lot of a lot of trust, right? So, uh, mm-hmm. I mean, at the time, my wife was working uh, also uh, up in the Virginia area, and 
we decided to take a risk. We actually found the job opportunity. This is back pre Craigslist and everything. This is like, <laughs> yeah. you know, we're looking. I'm looking up ads that are in the in the paper. So I assumed it was someone that you knew. No, but that's not the case. Did not know. I, just, oh. I answered a flat up ad that said, "Hey, we're looking for a software developer that's willing to live in the Chambridge area, which is a suburb of uh, Northern Virginia." And I answered that ad, met the CEO and founder who was an ex-Navy nuke. So that's a terminology. He was a naval officer that was on, a, on submarines. And he just had charisma and, and the ability that nothing, you couldn't do anything. He wasn't a developer, but he instilled in me at that point is, come on in, you get, to, you get to play with all the latest toys. And it's like, that's like a candy store to me. It's like, okay, great. I can't wait to jump in. And, and we just clicked. There was something about it. And the, the, the pay was fantastic. You know, when you're working for Air Force contracting, uh, a lot of people think you make a lot of money off the government. Well, at least in my scenario, that wasn't the case. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't making a really good paycheck. So much so that they moved me up from, from Lafayette to the Washington, D.C. area, and they paid for our move $500 to go toward the move. And they held that $500 over me for a year. So I, if I left the company within <laughs> a year, I had to pay back that 500 And I couldn't even do that. You know, it's like <laughs> a little bit different time frame. Was that company successful? Yeah. Starting from three people? Yeah, it's, I think it's got like 300 employees right now. It's still in business. Mm-hmm. I've got a few friends that are still there, and I would say it's successful. They didn't IPO or, or sell out. Uh, they stayed independent, which I thought was, that was pretty cool. So when I hear about a startup in that space doing what you were doing there, that seems like a hard market to get into and to have success in. Well, in this scenario, this founder CEO had such great connections, it made it a lot less so. So getting access to naval contracts was something that was already, he was bringing all that with him after he had exited mm-hmm. the Navy. So he knew how to navigate through, you know, getting these new contracts and, and job opportunities. And we felt really confident. And at the time, there was already a contract sitting there waiting for us to go jump on. So it's not like we had to sit around and and put together a lot of proposals uh, for that first one. And then subsequently, we learned how to do all those proposals. But at the time, it was like plop right in and start start coding and not even worrying about where the next, I, I don't think I worried once where the next paycheck was gonna come. So now we're gonna take a quick break to tell you about today's sponsor. Those of you who listen to the podcast regularly may remember that ThoughtBot actually started off basically doing everything that people would pay us to do with computers, including technical support. And one of the biggest pains that we had when doing that technical support was securely remotely connecting to people's desktops to be able to help them. There was nothing more frustrating than walking through something over the phone with somebody and telling them, click on this. Okay, do you see this? And not being able to see it for myself. Well, there's a product out there called ISL Online that helps with that problem. It's a secure and reliable remote desktop software so that you can support your customers and access even unattended computers. It's affordable and it works. It's called ISL Online. You can access Windows, Linux, or Mac remote computers in less than three seconds and help your clients the moment they need you. ISL Online will fully customize the remote desktop app to match your brand even. So if you have that support company or you wanna match your brand, you can do that. You can even set up permanent remote access by installing a remote access agent on any Windows or Mac computer. And you can use your phone, iPad, Android, Android tablet to access those computers as well so you can help your customers on the go. ISL Online is fully compliant with strict security standards industry expects. ISL Online users are IT professionals and help desk technicians from small and medium-sized businesses to Fortune 500 companies. Companies like Konica Minolta, Canon, IDEX, AT&T, Mitsubishi Chemical, and Avast, they all trust ISL Online for their remote desktop needs. There's no limit to the number of users, workstations, installations, or clients that you can support. So visit islonline.com slash giantrobots to learn more and sign up for their full-featured free trial. So what did you learn from that experience that then sort of set you in motion for the rest of your career? Or what what did you not learn? Uh, well, I mean, what I learned was I actually I created a, a consumer facing piece of software that was born out of the work that we were doing for the government. At that point, I learned, you know what, I like working with directly with consumers versus mm-hmm. working with specs. And, and it was a, it's just a different experience, a different environment 
and it's something I really wanted to go and do. While I was still there, we were doing some work with the early RS6000s, which was IBM's advanced workstation uh, that came out in the late 80s, uh, early 90s. They reached out to me and said, hey, uh, you guys are pushing our systems. Because uh, I kept on calling them, asking them questions about, hey, how, how do you work with your serial interface? How do you, you know, all these different technical things. And I said, what do you guys, they finally asked, what do you, where, where are you working on? I said, well, we can't tell you, <laughs> but it's pretty cool. <laughs> and I said, well, we could use somebody like you to come down and really help drive our, you know, some of our software stuff that we're doing. And, and so they made an offer. And I, I was like, oh, wow, you know, I, we just had our, Two years prior, we had uh, our first daughter born. Where my wife was currently pregnant, she had stopped working to, t- to stay home with uh, the first one, and was going to stay home for the second one as well. And trying to make a living on one income early days in the DC area is very difficult. It's very expensive up there. It still is expensive today. But when I got the offer to come down to Austin and work at IBM and, and their research group, I was like, yes, uh, I'm there. I'm closer to my family in New Orleans. I'm not in Louisiana. I'm, I'm in Austin. Uh, so nothing against Louisiana. Love the Saints, but, but I love them from here in Austin. Uh, so that opportunity presented itself, and it's like, okay, now I get to work at a very tech company. I mean, day one, when I sat down at my desk, everything worked. I mean, it was like clockwork. Phones, network, computer logins, you know, directory, everything was just boom there. And it's because they're very disciplined in that space. And that's the difference between working. Uh, when I would go and, and consult, we were doing things at, at Trident Systems was the name of the company. Uh, we'd go and, and visit other sites. Man, it's like pulling teeth trying to get things to work. And here, it's like everything just worked. And I said, okay, this is this is where I need to be. And it was just full of just other developers, right? And so everybody was kind of speaking the same language, challenging each other, et cetera. It was a really good com- camaraderie. I learned actually, I learned a lot at IBM uh, from a disciplinary perspective as well. I mean, they take coding very seriously and uh, created some uh, some good disciplines in me and in terms of how to design well prior to, you know, rolling out fixes, because if you architect your code up front, that will require less bug fixes and problems and other things later on. So it actually is a lot less expensive to spend more upfront time, even on the software architecture point versus waiting and just trying to get something going. IBM actually instilled that in me big time. So kudos to IBM. (laughs) (laughs) I could nerd out for literally hours talking about what you did at IBM and then afterwards, because we actually in college used CDE. I used it a lot. And so I have a lot of affinity for that and then where, where it went from there in terms of Unix UIs and everything you've been involved in. But let's sort of skip ahead (laughs) a little bit. At each step of the way, as you took on new things and new challenges and went to new companies, is there an overriding thing that has been sort of driving your decision-making process when you're thinking about the next thing you want to do? I, you know, I, I would say that, and this has become kind of my personal mantra, is just make things easier and don't just do it for because you can from a technology perspective, but do it because you want to delight the consumer. Uh, that that has probably been my my biggest, uh, if you will, you know, my north star of what I look towards when I look at any project. It's like, okay, I first I, I, I try to squarely put myself in the in the in the shoes of the consumer. I don't even like to use the word user. I, it's just something I but mm-hmm. I have to do it because if I keep on saying consumer with people, they think, oh, what are they consuming? They're not buying anything. They're just using your, so call them a user. I'm like, well, no, I still, I just think user, I don't like the word user. So consumers, <laughs> if I could just call them friends, that'd be even better. Uh, so people that actually have fun <laughs> using our, our software and services and products, you know, delighting them at, at things that are unexpected even. So doing things out of character for what they might expect from an experience where it's like, oh, wow, you can do that too. And, oh, they actually thought about this being easier so they kind of combine this and it's that stuff it's that level of detail and trying to think like a chess player where you're thinking four or five steps ahead and trying to stay four or five steps ahead of the consumer so that you can start to anticipate their needs and how they want to use your software and how they might be using it once they've mastered that first blush of your software they're going to want to start unpacking more and more and you need to be thinking about that So in 2002, you founded 
company called Bones in Motion. Yes. How did that idea come about? And were you already thinking about those sort of consumer level things that you were just talking about when you were starting up Bones in Motion? Yeah. So the, the Bones in Motion company, well, I'll tell you what it, what it ended up being, and then I'll tell you how I got there as fast as I can, right? So mm-hmm. Bones in Motion created a mobile experience uh, that would calculate speed, distance, pace, and calories burned using a mobile phone's uh, GPS. So E911 was just coming up. Uh, not all devices, actually no devices when we launched had GPS in them, uh, not launched, but when we started the company, we were kind of predicting poorly when uh, GPS was going to actually become <laughs> relevant as a platform for us to be able to run our software. But it didn't start out that way. It started out when we were on a, a trip to Oslo and we were on a, on a guided tour. So people were kind of guiding us around different places in, in the city and we had our 15 months in tow. And we would stay at places that had incredible Viking ships, but we had to be quiet, you know. And then we'd go to places outdoors where they had incredible sculpture gardens, and we wouldn't stay there a long time because the 15-month-old wanted to run around when, they were, yeah. when she was outside. And so we got back on the bus, and we were kind of talking to each other. And I said, wouldn't it be cool if you could just have a self-guided tour? I mean, they do this tour with three, four times a day. And you could stay as long as you want at places. And when you got to the next place, GPS would recognize you there and it would give you the spiel because the guy's saying the same thing every single time. Why can't we just do a self-guided tour? And that just kind of stuck in my mind and started really putting pen to paper uh, when we got back to Austin from that trip. And I said, let's start to narrow the scope. So we actually narrowed it to New York because there's just a lot of places of interest there. And we could build like a self-guided tour for tourists. A lot of tourists go there. And then we found out uh, as we started negotiating through that and the marketing and how we would actually engage consumers, the audience we should be going after because they represented the largest demographic are the Japanese that are coming over to New York to view that and already have the technical awareness because this is a piece of hardware too that we were building, uh, hardware and software. They would be the ones that would be quick to adapt to something like this. And we would have to translate everything into Japanese. And and as we started unpacking that, I'm going, man, I... Here I am in Austin. I don't feel like building software for New York mm-hmm. City for a different demographic than the ones that are already around me right now. This is stretching it. So we stopped that and said, what other uses can we use for GPS? And my wife was, was in the process of training for a half marathon. And we would, after she would go do her runs or even before she would do her runs, we would actually go in the car and measure with the odometer how far a certain route was so that she was trying to meet certain goals, you know, progressively getting longer as the event was approaching. And in the process of doing that, we, we said, wait, okay, this is a way we can use GPS. Let's get rid of the odometer driving around in the car and let's go figure it out so that you can have your phone in your hand and that will actually track your speed, distance, pace as you're training. And Bones in Motion was born out of that. And just to reiterate, this is very pre-iPhone. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so, the, yeah. Yeah. so that's why you were also needing to build hardware or, or thought you did at first because- We thought we were at first. We're going to have to build it on Palm. For the self-guided tour, we were looking at a Jeep, building a little a chip that would plug into a Palm Pilot, if you remember those, and we were going to write software for the Palm Pilot. And uh, that had a CDMA, not a CDMA, but it was a type of uh, cellular radio that you could also have in these things. That was a requirement. So we did two things. One, we got rid of that idea. That was a dumb idea, thinking we we're going to have to go build a hardware piece. So let's just go build software. So now what? What's the roadmap look like for handsets, uh, all these flip phones and candy bars that everybody's kind of used to if they're over the age of 40? We said, okay, let's, uh, let's go build those. And we went and talked to Motorola, talked to all the different vendors, and found out their roadmaps. Well, their roadmaps for when they were going to add GPS were a lot sooner than when the actual carriers themselves were going to fire up GPS, because this this had to be in conjunction. There was a, mm-hmm. you know, they had to use cell towers for triangulation. GPS requires not only satellites in the sky, but if you have accurate GPS, you need to have uh, triangulation on the ground as well. And for the accuracy we were wanting, we needed like 15 meter accuracy in order to have believable numbers for speed, pace, and distance, right? So calories burn, that's, you know, everybody debates calories burn, so I won't even bring that into the conversation. But everything else, uh, we needed that to be accurate, else nobody would use our product. And so literally, we we were sitting on software in 2004. We didn't launch on our first carrier until until February 2006. So we had two years we had to wait uh, with software ready to go. And we're talking, we've raised money. Uh, we're, we're burning money. We're not making revenue. 
you know, it was a very precarious situation. Um, but you know, we, we were able to, we were able to make it through. So that was good. We actually ended up w winning, uh, the, in 2005, we won the, uh, LBS, which stands for location based services, uh, uh, app of the year award. So that was, that was phenomenal. We got a, a big check for, I think 50 grand. And at the time that's huge yeah. and access to a bunch of other, you know, that actually put us on the, on the proverbial map in 2005 and then we launched in 2006 which was So you cool. you mentioned earlier when we were talking that you patented this idea. Yeah, we did. What specifically did you patent? Using a mobile phone to calculate speed distance pace and calories burned. Yeah. I mean, it was pretty it was pretty broad and then we started we got into uh, smoothing algorithms because GPS is a funny beast. It works great mm -hmm. when you're in open sky, but when you get into urban canyons uh, where there's tall buildings, GPS signals bounce. We had to create algorithms that would handle that, try to predict the bounce, try to pick the true location of where the runner or the cyclist or the walker was at all times. And we were creating a pipeline of, of points. And then we'd, we'd be smoothing them based on previous points and prior points. And because here's the other thing. At the same time, Google Maps was coming out, but they hadn't come out quite quite just yet. Mm -hmm. So we were working with another map provider, and we were getting tiles. I mean, no pinch and zoom. This is just you got a tile, a tile meaning a rectangle uh, map area that would show up in our app, and we'd overlay on top of that the route. Well, you really couldn't zoom a lot, but you had enough of a zoom level. You could go and see post-run or workout, hey, did I really do that? And if that didn't look like you did it, Again, it goes back to the GPS issue we had earlier. It's like, if, if it doesn't represent what I did, I'm not going to trust this, and therefore I'm not going to use it. So a lot of our IP was around making sure those lines accurately showed. Uh, and also, there's stuff we never e even ended up using. We wanted to have color bands so that you'd have a band that would show your heart rate if you're wearing a heart rate strap, or it would show uh, the incline and decline of the elevation. So at a glance, you could just look at that section of the route and no, oh, my heart is going up. Oh, well, so is the incline. Got it. I'm not worried about any issues. You know, everything was kind of correlating. So mm -hmm. stuff like that was, we got into the details of, of how you would present that information to the consumer. We're going to take a quick break to tell you about another one of today's sponsors. Are you on your way to work right now? On your way out to work? Are you dreading coming into the office? Stop living for the weekend and start doing what you love with Indeed Prime. They'll help you skip irrelevant engineering, product design, and other tech roles to help you go further in your career. One free application on Indeed Prime puts tech candidates in front of thousands of companies like PayPal, Twilio, and WP Engine across more than 90 cities. It's that simple. They'll match you to the right role based on your needs. All their candidates also get one-on-one -on -one access to technical career coaching, resume reviews, mock interviews, and even salary negotiation tips to seal the deal. So whether you're hiring or looking, meet your match on Indeed Prime. Join now at www.indeedprime.com slash ThoughtBot. That's www.indeedprime.com slash ThoughtBot. So because of where the technology was, you didn't end up launching until, I think you said February of 2006. Right, on Sprint. And then not until the fall on, on Verizon and then the next year on AT&T. I mean, and they were all different operating systems too. One was Java-based, one was Brew. Brew was an early mm -hmm. version. So what did you do when the iPhone came out in 2007? Yeah, the iPhone came out in 07, but you couldn't write for it, right? So it came right. out and we looked at it not until 08, you know, a year later, could you write for it? We had already had been approached uh, in 07 by our first suitor, and we went down a path trying to make that work. So the iPhone comes out. Um, we're in the midst of uh, being acquired and had a term sheet prior to uh, signing in December. So right before Christmas, we think everything's we, we've redlined everything. We think it's going to be sold. We didn't spend any of our energy on looking at the iPhone because we really we didn't even know what Apple was doing at that point. Mm -hmm. And then that deal fell through. The company decided it was a private company. They decided to get bought by another company, and so they took all corporate dev off the table. So that was that was actually the Weather Channel. The Weather Channel ended up being acquired by NBC, but it was cool because they they really correlated weather with outdoor cyclists and runners and walkers. Right. They care a lot about that, so they we actually integrated weather into our app as well and did some really cool stuff around weather. Where while you're running, if you looked at your performance one day versus the next. 
if there was a big difference, we actually looked at the degree of difficulty of the run based on humidity, wind, mm -hmm. heat. I mean, those all affect your performance. And so we actually calculated all that stuff so we could tell you, and you could look at the difficulty index, even though it was the same route, it was more difficult that day versus the other. I digress on that, but that's the detail stuff, right? Going down and yep. trying to think ahead. But that deal didn't happen. So the Weather Channel didn't happen. We still kept the Weather Channel data in our app. And now it's 2008, and we get another uh, another suitor comes in, and, the, and it's, it's Adidas. And they wanted some help in terms of you know, creating a new, a new platform for runners and cyclists that's mobile-based. They've been thinking about mobile. They'd already done a deal with Samsung to create a fitness phone, believe it or not. Never made it really here in the States. It was more in South Korea and, and Europe. But they needed somebody like us to come in and give them our understanding about the business and, and our IP was a, a key consideration. But we're in the midst of negotiating that right when 08 happens. A couple things happened in 08 in September. You know, for most geeks, the iPhone uh, released their, their first SDK that you, know, you could actually develop for the platform leading up to that. But also, if you remember, the stock market just tanked in yep. September of 08. And that scared, you know, all businesses away from any, any M&A activity. And again, Adidas has pulled back and uh, said, uh, hey, we're, we need to shuffle the decks and see how this is going to impact us and trust us. We'll get back to you uh, next year. And now we're, we're kind of like, you know, when you're in the middle of being acquired or you think you're being acquired, the last thing you, that I was thinking I wanted to do, and this was wrong thinking on my part, was don't raise any more money. Because the more money you raise, the more you're giving away the company and you're just about to sell it. So why don't you keep as much equity as you can? As opposed to thinking long term, hey, if this doesn't happen, at least we've got a buffer. Well, I didn't leave that mm -hmm. buffer. I, I was kind of like not thinking. <laughs> so we kind of ran on Ether. I'd let our dev team actually go out and do other projects in the midst of all this acquisition conversation. Uh, and it wasn't until you just came full circle again back in the beginning of 09 and the acquisition actually happened that we were able to pull the team all the way back together and, and all of us went on board with Adidas uh, minus one who stayed as a consultant for Adidas for several years, but just didn't want to go work for a big company. But yeah, that was uh, a learning experience there. I was like CEO 101. I wasn't a CEO though. Uh, I, was a, I was a CEO of that company. <laughs> That's not to put blame on anybody. Uh, our CEO did a great job and everything and everything else, but this was just a difficult situation yeah. all the way around. Well, the industry you were in, in terms of the technology from GPS to eventually the iPhone went through so much change in that, you know, eight year period, six year period. It did. It became more accurate. It became easier to write applications. You didn't have to do all the heavy lifting that we did around GPS smoothing. The the platform started to do that automatically. So writing a a fitness app, you know, in in 09 on the iPhone or 10 was easy. I mean, Relatively speaking. Relatively speaking, it was a lot easier than what we had to do. We were, we were like on the bare metal. You know, it's like we, Qualcomm would call us in and say, okay, you're, you guys are exercising our GPS chipsets more than anybody else. Tell us what you need. What, you know, so we actually helped sit down and plan the type of features that we needed in the GPS chipsets. That's how early we were in terms of trying to do this. I remember we lit up one neighborhood in Austin so we can go test the app. And I had to go drive with a phone in hand and mark the GPS locations of these cell towers for Verizon, so that, just so we could actually run the software. And uh, it was it was way early days, but it was a lot of fun. I still remember it. And I still laugh and made some good friends through it as well. So starting Koya in 2018, we talked about how that originated and how you started that with your family. But from a product perspective. How did your previous experiences and how did what you want to do differently influence you for Koya? It goes back to, you know, there was an opportunity I saw where if we build this right up front and we have the right folks around the table building it, we, we have ourselves a good chance of making a breakout product here because we did a lot of conversations prior seeing, is this really going to work? I mean, would you use something like this? I mean, we were, we were really high level stuff, but it resonated so well and it was so easy to explain, right? And it's like, why hasn't this been done? Surely Venmo's done this. Surely PayPal or somebody else has done has thought about doing something like this. But no, 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 this has been done. It's like people kept on scratching their heads. They'd have that aha moment. They go, I could use this yesterday for my friend's birthday. I forgot to send the card. I could have just sent a Koya, had it showed up either at their work address or their home address or maybe a coffee shop that I know they like to go to. 
I would use that in a heartbeat. And so some of the early stuff that we were hearing kind of led us down that path of, wow, you know what, we're, we have the ability to do something that could really start elevating kindness in general, you know, giving to people, even if they're your friends and family members, when you give, it releases a chemical in the brain called serotonin. And that actually makes you feel good. So you've heard the terminology, it's better to give than to receive. Mm-hmm. We really firmly believe that. And so you feel good when you give to somebody, the person you're thinking about giving to, they also feel good. And so there's this win-win scenario that's happening. And so we started building upon that, a kindness platform, and that elevated the conversation away from a technology play really into something bigger. And I guess to answer your question in a longer about way, what we did differently was we looked at ways we could really help change the dynamic, change the way humans communicate or desire to reach out and stay connected because the current networks have failed us. The more connected our world got, the less connected our world got. <laughs> it was like, <laughs> you know, it, it failed us in lots of different ways and not on purpose, but just not forward thinking on what the, what the effects would be if we had something that was so connected like Facebook and other, other big social networks. We were really from the day one thinking this is small, it's contained, it's just your family and friends, and it's a way to just to to do things out of the ordinary is to create unexpected surprises or serendipitous moments. And, and the kindness thing really resonated when we talked to potential partners, when we talked to software developers, you know, we were interviewing people to come on and help us uh, in this journey. When we talked to ThoughtBot and said, hey, here's what we're looking at doing. And it really resonated with the lead designer. So Kyle, our lead designer we've been using for nine months now, really got it. And you could tell the passion that went into, you know, the light switch going on. And that's probably the biggest difference going into this project is that it was, if we could be any more consumer first and not technology driven, it would be this, this Mm -hmm. potential platform. I'm not saying we can't do it again, but it's going to be hard because it just, that's all we talk about is how we're going to help people as opposed to well, what widget are we going to use or what control are we going to use? You know, when we create an experience, how's that going to help somebody? I mean, how's that going to help them uh, create a habit of being kind? How's it going to help them give a thank you back? You know, because we have a feedback mechanism that allows you to say thank you for sending a Koya. And we really want to encourage that. We want to start exercising that part of the brain where people are going to be more apt to want to give, not just giving to their friends and family, but let's say, somebody's giving you five dollars for coffee you you know you end up at the coffee shop the, you get the koya here's five dollars uh, it's from your friend they were thinking about you great well there's three things i can do at that point one is i can take that money and put it in my in my account my checking account the guy bought me coffee i'm happy two i could pay it forward i could say hey you know what i really don't need that five dollars i'm in good shape right now but uh, you know i've got a friend that could use that five dollars so i'm going to send them a koya and give them a drink at their favorite coffee spot or I can hit a button saying, you know what, I'm just going to give this to charity, to a nonprofit. The money never was mine. I just want to give it. And so now it starts building a giving muscle for the consumers we're going after, for the Gen Zs and the millennials. This provides a great opportunity for them to learn how to give. In some cases, not even using their own money initially, but over time, hopefully it builds enough of a of a desire because they feel good when they give that they become givers long term down the road. Earlier on in the conversation, you mentioned upfront design, architecture, planning to make sure you're building the right product. And that's something that at ThoughtBot, we, I realized that we should have mentioned that we've worked with you (laughs) (laughs) upfront in the episode. I, I don't know if it's an ethics thing or what, but that's something we really believe in at ThoughtBot. How do you strike a balance between doing enough upfront planning to validate your idea and to know that you're on the right track and that you've you know you're not wasting development time later the balance between that and taking forever and never getting something in the hands of users for a long time and that kind of thing yeah it's not even a a bipolar kind of conversation because <laughs> it's try it's a trifle and, and and it's kind of interesting because you've got this balance between time that you can spend upfront designing and you've got time that you could spend getting the developers up to speed and how, how expensive that's, that's going to be. But the thing you don't have always as a developer, unless one of the founders is coding, which in our case was not the case, right? So even though I've, I've developed in the past, I'm now at a, at a level where I'm just thinking of the architecture. I'm not actually twiddling bits anymore. Mm-hmm. But we 
we also had to, had to take into consideration uh, money coming in, our fundraising, our friends and family. As we were looking at that money coming in, that actually played, unfortunately, a bigger role. Like I said, if I could go back in time, I would have spent more of that friends and family money on the design itself. They weren't asking for a product. Mm-hmm. They were just asking for, you guys go create something cool. Go do it and do it right. And I was thinking, well, I better go do something and get improve it fast versus, you know, taking the time. We only did like a week design sprint. And then I kept Kyle on, our designer, you know, intermittently and then not really as a retainer. But we just had to keep on going back to him because left in my own hands, it's like, okay, this piece isn't looking like that piece over there. There was no uniform iconography. There was, you know, what fonts to use, uh, you know, what user model, what can you do on iOS versus Android? There's a lot of design considerations. And we actually probably went through several revs during the course of development, which is the worst way to do things. So not only are we spending money on design at that point to redesign, uh, we're also chewing away money on the dev team that just built something that didn't work and you had to throw it away. You know, you'd never want to be in that situation. And I've unfortunately put myself in that situation a couple of times on this project. But at the same time, I'm I'm always learning. Going forward, we've been spending a lot more energy uh, on the design side, you know, staying about a month ahead of the dev team as best we can to really think it through and to see how you know how it resonates before just you know plopping it in front of them, saying, "Okay, go go code this." So at this point, Koya is on the App Store for iOS. You can go to it at getkoya.com, right? Yeah, you can, and also Android just launched today. And Android too. Sorry, that's today. Yeah. Woo! Oh, it's today. Yes. <laughs> Congratulations. Yeah, thanks. No, we launched Android today. It was supposed to be yesterday, but we had a little hiccup, and uh, so today is the day. <laughs> That's great. So both platforms, people can go to GetKoya to get a link to the app and, and download it and give it a try. So you have that. What's next for you and for Koya, and where are you going? Right now, we're sitting on top of a payment system that's that's built by PayPal. It's paypal.me. And so what we want to do, and we did that that was our second rev of doing payment systems to be able to send gifts. You don't have to send a gift with Koya. And matter of fact, Koya is free. You can use it as much as you want. Even if you send gifts, uh, PayPal is actually free. So you can effectively mm-hmm. use the app for free. But PayPal also works globally, which was a big benefit for us. So we're live in, in Canada, cross-border, Mexico, and also down in Australia. What's next, though, is there are certain countries where they have payment systems that are more readily used by consumers. Uh, I would mm-hmm. say even in the U.S., a Venmo or, or somebody like that, Cash, Apple Pay, Google Pay would have you know some better inroads in, in how that stuff works. So we want to continue to investigate those platforms while still staying on PayPal and hopefully make it as frictionless as possible. But key on our list is is staying on top of that as well as creating a way to monetize. You know, so when you have a freemium version, you, you have a free version and you have a, a version that you pay, for, you know, a monthly subscription for, or you, you pay for certain features that you want to use one off or for a month or whatever. So we actually have key features already in the pipeline that are going out. And I'll give you, I'll give you some examples. One of them is pretty cool. Like say here in Austin, if I want to send a friend of mine that lives in Austin, a you know, a coffee and I know they like Starbucks. You know, so I, I could actually send them today on the current app. I'd have to pick the Starbucks that I think they're gonna, they're most likely to go to. Maybe it's one between their home and, and work. Mm-hmm. But one of the features we're adding is you can pick every Starbucks in Austin. And the first Starbucks they go to is the one that's going to trigger the notification. So that kind of capability where you have a, a Koya that becomes live at every single Starbucks. The ability to set a time window so it's your birthday week. I know you go to this coffee shop every single week, sometimes multiple times a week, but I don't want you to receive the Koi I sent to you until it's your birthday week. So you can put time windows in there. That's another another feature that we're going to be coming out with. And then dwell time. Dwell time is simply you're, you're at the coffee shop. You don't want to send the Koi immediately as soon as they get to the coffee shop. You want to send it maybe a half hour later. It could be to a friend that you know has gone to a coffee shop to study. So in about a half hour, an hour, if they're still there, now send them something saying, hey, you know what? We were thinking about you. I know you're studying hard for that exam. Have a coffee on me. So they've already bought their first coffee. That's long been cold or drunk or it's no longer there. Uh, so now come alongside in phase two of sitting at that coffee shop as an example. So those are some of the features that we're going to be rolling out that we think subscribers are willing to, to jump on. And so why did you choose to sort of go the freemium model versus 
a transaction fee or a percentage of the Well, it doesn't mean that we will never go there, but I've, I've never felt comfortable making money on other people's money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know what it is. You got to be at peace with things, right? And that was a model that was presented to us. We looked at that model. We actually were building out a model that was based on transactions, not the amount of the transaction, but just a transaction fee. And we were kind of stuck around 65 cents for each coil that had money, whether it was $5 or $1,000. I don't know. It's something that we'll investigate and we'll continue to, to look at. But the free part really helped us get a user base mm-hmm. and understanding about, did we mm-hmm. build this right? Do we have market fit? Are we in a space where now we can do things like that, where it might be a premium option to send money that if you're not a PayPal user, you can do it you know, from checking to checking or using Zelle or some other form of payment. Mm-hmm. That would be something worth looking at. But there's a lot of friction when you get into some of that stuff too. When you have to put in a lot of bank information to a third-party app that you've never heard of, like your last four, your social, your email address, your home address, your date of birth, people kind of get freaky about that stuff. Like, "Eh, you know what? I don't really feel comfortable. I give that to Chase. I give it to my bank, but I'm not going to give that to a third party. That kind of squashed that ability for us to do our own peer-to-peer payment systems integrated into the app tightly. But we actually developed it. (laughs) And this is where have we designed it and put it in front of consumers at the design phase, we would have learned that this was a problem. Instead, Mm -hmm. we took that design, we coded up and had it out in beta format, our second beta, had that in there. And the feedback was, uh, yeah, we're going to fill out this information for you. And it was all dummy data even during the beta, but we would never do this if it was somebody else. If if this app was really live, we'd never do it. Well, John, thank you so much for joining me and and sharing all of your experience and stories. I wish you the best with Koya. I hope you get lots of friends using your app. That's exactly right. As many friends as we can on the planet. That'd be (laughs) awesome. (laughs) If people want to, you know, get in touch with you or follow along with you, where's the best place for them to do that? At GetKoya on Twitter or or Instagram as GetKoya or even GetKoya.com in any of those places. Cool. You can subscribe to the show and find notes for this episode and all the other ones at GiantRobots.fm. If you have questions or comments, email us at hosts at giantrobots.fm. And you can find me on Twitter at cpytel. This podcast is brought to you by ThoughtBot and produced and edited by Tom Obarski. Thanks so much for listening and see you next time. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, San Francisco, New York, London, Austin, and Raleigh, let's build something great together.